Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's show is going to be exciting because we're talking about inflammation, which is one of my favorite subjects, which happens when your body doesn't do a good job of combining air and food to make electrons. Instead, it does something wrong and you get inflammation. But we're going to talk with a major researcher about how inflammation is related to fasting, to cancer, even to COVID. And our guest today is Dr. Miriam Murad, who's an internationally acclaimed physician scientist at Mount Sinai, who leads the Precision Immunology Institute at the Icon School of Medicine. Fortunately, that's called PRISM is the acronym for that, so I can say that. And PRISM integrates immunological research programs looking at biology, medicine, tech, physics, math, and computational biology. This is basically a really smart person, and if that didn't convince you, She's a professor in cancer immunology and founded the Human Immune Monitoring Center at Mount Sinai. This is likely the world's most sophisticated research center because of single cell technology that they're using to look at what immune cells are doing to all major human diseases and treatment responses. Basically, you want to know how your immune system works? This is the person to talk to. Dr. Murad, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Wow, you've done so much in your career. I mean, this is really high-level stuff. You've written more than 200 papers in high, in, you know, big visibility journals, and people have cited your work thousands of times. How did you get here? Like, like, Why the fascination with this one little immune thing of all the things you could have done with your obviously big brain? Like, how did, Just explain why. Well, you know, it interest in that system, interest, uh, you know, based on the fact that we, as a human species, are alive today, you know, because we were able to survive millions of years of exposure to threats, you know, whether they were infectious threats like viruses, many different types of microbes, not only viruses, but also extreme fatigues, uh, but also extreme weather and and the realization that you know the we didn't have doctors at that time, right? The only reason we were able to survive, or those of us that survive, are those that have an immune system that that protected them. It is our best doctor, and in fact, there are there is a, I I realize a children's book calling the immune system is your best doctor. It's exactly that it is, and yet I realized when I was trained. You know, being trained as 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 a cancer doctor, which is my clinical training, that you know we were not exploiting that. We do not know yet how to exploit or to maximize our knowledge of the immune system. Now it is being exploited to treat cancer and inflammation, and I'll talk about COVID maybe during this show. But yes. the fascination is that there is so much to discover, you know, about that system and to use to treat you know most human diseases. And and my fascination continued to grow. In fact, I turned fifteen, you know, a year ago. And and uh, mm-hmm. uh, I never talked about my age, but now I still I use it to say I am as excited or even more excited as I was twenty years ago when I really decided to become a cancer immunologist. It feels like we're making exponential improvements in our knowledge, largely because of that computational biology thing. Because there's so much more we can see now. And I'm so excited uh, because I, I see this bright future where we're going to know 10 times more in a couple of years than we know now. And it seems like it's just growing and growing. Um, but it, it sounds like your primary motivator, you were, this was an unexplored territory and you wanted to go explore an area that we just didn't know. And so curiosity, maybe it sounds like that's the real driver for you. I, I'll yeah. tell you a, a little thing that happened during my career where I was being trained as a, as a cancer uh, physician and all my patients were dying. I was trained in France, hence my accent. So I'm sorry, you know, the audience. But <laughs> no need to apologize. <laughs> I was very strong and not going to go away. But uh, um, uh, but but I I was I, and I was sad. I was very attached. I was really. I did. I went. I wanted to be a physician and I wanted to treat patients because I come from a family of physicians and I was trained. I was, you know, spend my childhood in the hospital waiting for my parents. Uh, I love that atmosphere of the, I love the hospital. And I was, so I, I was, I was, you know, on the floor and I would study some of my patients' lesions, you know. So I went to the microscope with an attending and I look at this lesion and I realized that in cancer, there were more immune cells, there were cancer cells. 
So I asked the attendings, like, you know, why do we call it a cancer lesion? I mean, there is much more cancer, there are much more than cancer cells in, in that lesion. And and to me, it was a revelation of, you know, that, the, you know, the, the, there is a group of cells that are there maybe to fight, but they were not able to fight, to eliminate it completely. What if we unleash them? And and this is how everything started. Yes, curiosity about why there was these immune cells there. In in what I thought initially, you know, maybe naively, as being, you know, that, you know, all full, a lesion full of cancer cells that were destroying our body. No, there was a reaction. There was some cells that were trying to stop it and they were unable to do so. What if, what if we were able to unleash that response? And this was happening now, 20 years later. Uh, it. It's so amazing. It, sometimes you look at something and sometimes you look at the environment that it's in. And the whole idea behind biohacking was that change the environment, change the biology because it seems to listen. And you had the, the similar thinking earlier on about, okay, what's causing it? Maybe it's around it uh, and looking at the, the body as a system. And in my own path, having lost 100 pounds, having had chronic inflammation for much of my life and learning how to tackle that as a hacker saying, I don't know everything going on, but if I change the inputs, I can look at the outputs and see what works and you, we can get there. But I feel like you're the person who's now opening the box up and looking inside and saying, ah, it was that pathway, it was this. And given that deep knowledge you have, what brought you to my attention was the paper you published in Cell in August of 2019, Dietary Intake Regulates the Circulating Inflammatory Monocyte Pool. Basically, fasting reduces inflammation and improves chronic disease. I was doing my research for my book on fasting that's just coming out. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. Very recent research. What did you find around infections and fasting? It's interesting, this study. Um, you know, I was always interested in, um, in diet because all immunologists are interested in food because, you know, this is uh, uh, an influx of foreign agents, you know, to our body. Right. So immune, the, the immunology study response to foreign attack, right? So uh, all of us are at some point in our career have been interested or exposed to people studying, you know, response to uh, the microbiome or to resp- and, and, f- and food uh, allergy and, and tolerance to food ant- antigen and how this, how does our body understand, uh, you know, how to react or not to react against this food, you know, a lot of uh, uh, stuff that are being uh, brought to us, you know, from the outside world, right? And uh, and and you know, the, the 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 big puzzle of the immune system is to be able to recognize what's what's dangerous from what's not dangerous. And when it doesn't know how to recognize that, it leads to severe disease, including inflammation and autoimmune disease, etc. So I was I was interested in how the immune system responds to this. But while many of my colleagues were looking at the gut and the intestine, I looked at the systemic response. Again, you know, this high-level view of the, the body's system, right? Everything is connected. And uh, is it is is the, the source of immune cells, which is our bone marrow, you know, bone marrow is a source of immune cells. When you have an infection, when you have COVID, for example, it's something we yeah. are studying very fully now, uh, is your bone marrow going to, it's the bone marrow that's going to provide some effector cells, some army, you know, an army of cells that are going to the site of infection. So I was asking how the, whether the bone marrow was sensing something, right? And maybe we were not going to find anything. So I, you know, with a fill of mine, the first author of the, the paper was now leading his own laboratory at the Al Charité in Berlin, a big institution. Um, and he's going to, going to be working full force on this. We asked this question is, okay, are we sensing foods, you know, at this, at the, at this systemic level? And indeed, this was the case. So somehow, each time we were eating, each time we, so we were fasting animals, mice, and each time we were introducing some food, the animal, uh, the, the, the bone marrow was re- were releasing this monocyte. And monocytes are inflammatory cells that are released when there is an infection. You know? So we thought, oh, you know, so the, the, the bone marrow is sensing that we are eating. So each, you know, the, the, the uh, eating is a threat. You know, and in fact, when yeah. you think about it, it's true. You know, when you eat, you can ingest something that can be dangerous to yourself. So we have to be in a position to defend ourselves. And who are the, the, the defenders? Who is the army of the human body? It is the immune system. So the immune system was being mobilized. Now, and, and, uh, and what struck me is 
that that in fact you know mice eat all the time because when the, the way we cage them we well we we horse them i hope animal activists are not listening too much but but you know they are very useful these studies i can tell you that and if any animal activists are offended that we're making the world a better place with mice, you guys are free to unsubscribe. <laughs> there. So. Uh, but then we try to be as humane as possible. Of course. The way we, we so we, we put food and there is access to food all the time, right? And uh, and then it, ma- it made us realize, you know, so my, my fellow was telling me, well, you know, um, he was being very interested in fasting, but I was thinking at some point the discussion was around when did humans started to eat so often, you know, why did we start to have these three dinner course? And in fact, in America, we eat even more than that. Like we eat, and and I'm a big snacker, so, you know, I (laughs) snack all the time. So why do we eat so often? You know, so when you think about humanity, right, we started, we were eating when we were hungry. You know, we will eat and and we will walk and exercise that we, when we are hungry and we get, you know, food to, uh, you know, like to, to, you know, when, you know, in response to, uh, to, to hunger, which is not the case anymore. And then we started to really think about whether this constant exposure to food is making the, 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 our body believe that there is potential constant, constant threat. And that somehow we change, you know, that physiology, that rheostat that usually is, okay, you have a body of food every two days. This is how, you know, probably early humans were doing. And then, you know, you have this bolus and you can cope with that. But here there was this constant release of immune cells and inflammatory cells. And we wonder whether this is contributing maybe to many inflammatory diseases such as atherosclerosis, which always now occurs to hundreds of to all of us, you know, with age, you know, all of us are going to develop atherosclerosis. It's extraordinary. Is it, is it really maybe a response to these new habits, dietary habits that we developed uh, for, not, not, not for physiological reasons, you know, maybe for social reasons. And, and we were wondering uh, whether this needs to be revisited. Wow. So what's happening there is, is, the body says there's some foreign stuff inside of me because you chewed it up and, and did that. And it says, all right, I've got to use similar mechanisms to break that down that I use to break down other things that might be inflammatory in the body. Excess protein inside of cells, you know, autophagy processes. And since if you're a chronic eater, it's similar to having a chronic infection, which would raise your white blood cells and show in, in lab work that you have these problems. Yet if you occasionally don't eat for a while, then all of that chronic inflammation goes away. And then the systems that were doing that can either recover so your immune system is better or they can go do repair work elsewhere in the body. Am I saying that right? Yeah, it's exactly that. It's, 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 okay. a bit, uh, it's extraordinary when you think of it, you know, extraordinary to the point that I started now, you know, this, you know, to fast a bit, you know, I changed my habit completely where I, I stopped wow. lacking because we, uh, it, it was so clear and reproducible that somehow if you eat less, uh, you have less inflammation. I, I got to the point when I weighed 300 pounds where I was so inflamed. I, I could tell by whether I would get blisters from walking, sometimes even, uh, you know, a few hundred yards. My, my toes would get blisters, which is a very large inflammatory problem. And just the pain and the energy level in my brain. So I started finding things before I knew as much biology as I do now, uh, where I could say, if I eat, I'm always more inflamed than if I don't eat. And it, of course, depends on what you eat as well. You know, a, a plate of French fries is different than, you know, eating an egg or something. Like, they're they're just fundamentally different. But uh, now we know so much to say there's a case for having nothing or substantially nothing. You probably can have coffee and tea and stuff like that, according to some evidence I found. Um, but what I found in your paper that was interesting you were looking at the immune system's response to acute infections versus fasting. And what I believe the paper said was that your chronic inflammation would go down when you fasted, but it wouldn't affect your ability to fight off a virus or a bacteria. Yeah, that was a very important finding, I have to yeah. say, because, you know, the, 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 the goal of this immune system is to protect us against infection, right? So what's the point of, you know, having, you know, a, a, a reduced 
level of circulating inflamed cells if we are not able to uh, protect ourselves, right? So it was very important to us to really realize whether somehow there was a connection between this level of inflammatory cells and our protective ability or whether in fact, uh, you know, have been even better not to have all these circulating immune cells and not really interfere with our ability to react and respond and release the immune cells when needed. So we've done this experiment where we we did many different types of infection and we saw absolutely no difference. Now, I want to make a big, uh, you know, like here, I want, I, I want uh, so, so it was very important for us to really understand whether we were compromising anything. Now, one thing I wanted to highlight is we were looking at intermittent fasting. So it means that we were looking at mice that were not eating for 16 hours. No, sorry. Mice were either four hours or uh, 12 hours and also some uh, uh, volunteers that were not eating for 18 hours. We were not studying cachexia. Cachexia is something very different where, uh, and, and we know that this harmed the immune system. It's very important to make this difference is that if someone starves for many days, he is immune compromised. A long fast, you're saying, versus an intermittent fast. Yes, exactly. Intermittent <laughs> fasting you know, uh, uh, is, is very, very different than this long-term fasting that can really compromise your immune system. However, I can tell you for a fact now, you know, we've done it you know, enough that we are sure that if you do this intermittent fasting, you, we absolutely didn't affect our ability to fight acute infection. And, um, and now there are, and, and also what we, we are, and maybe we can talk about chronic inflammation also, but acute infection was not compromised and we did improve chronic inflammation. In humans, chronic inflammation is tied to cancer. It's tied to cardiovascular disease. It's probably caused by diabetes, but may also cause diabetes. And if you look at Alzheimer's disease, yep, inflammation, all the big killers of people, uh, the, the fuse is lit by chronic inflammation which is one of the reasons I think I need to write a book on how to do an intermittent fast without being hungry so it can be achievable. But I came across two studies that are interesting in respect to the immune system and fasting that I wanted to ask you about. And this is just as I was writing a chapter on, funny enough, immunity and fasting. <laughs> so uh, one of them showed that fasting worked really well for bacterial infections and, and survival goes way up. Uh, when you fast uh, a human or an animal during a bacterial infection. But during a viral infection, having higher levels of blood glucose, not excessively high, but just you know, the normal from eating, enhanced survival. That was probably a mouse study. So th they were actually looking at essentially bacteria, you want to be in a ketogenic state from fasting, and viruses, you might want to have some glucose ready to power some systems that are necessary to give you resilience against the virus. Any commentary on those findings? Yeah, these are very interesting studies. I'm by a very good friend of mine. Uh, okay. Yeah, and so, you know, it's a little bit complex. Uh, and I, I think there is maybe uh, more to, to look at. Um, and, yeah. and in this study in particular, there was, there was prolonged fasting, you know, so the, the animals were fasting for a prolonged period of time. And he was looking at um, how this was affecting our ability to mount, you know, different pathways, indeed, you know, different pathways for different infection, uh, we looked at something a little bit different. We, uh, uh, and, and, and I think he's right, but we were looking at two different systems. And I think it's important to make these differences. Okay. The, the reason why I think, and he was not looking at intermittent fasting, he was looking at prolonged. Yeah, longer fasting, correct, to get into ketosis, two days plus, yeah. To genetic diet. You know, these are different processes that requires, I think, very serious uh, work in animals, but also in, 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 in human beings. If you want to look at long starvation or, or longer period of fasting, you have to be quite careful at really measuring exactly uh, the, the, the response mechanism that you are going to induce. Here, you know, the, the reason why I'm excited about intermittent fasting is because we didn't want to, so we, we realized that we have not put mice, well, there was some ketogenic uh, 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 you know, pathway that were starting to be induced, but not extreme, nothing was extreme. It seems to, to us that what we were doing is putting someone in some type of good physiological state. 
Right. Where, uh, you know, no, nothing was suffering to the point where you were using, you know, uh, ketogenesis, you know, to produce and uh, to, you, you were just reducing somehow some of the metabolic, metabolic state. So, so it was before ketosis kicks in. It would, an intermittent fast will, if, if women, at least human women, do an every other day intermittent fast for 16 or 18 hours, they'll get a slight rise in ketones over the course of the week, but they're not in full-on ketosis. They'll have you know, 0.1, 0.2, 0.3, but not much more. And, and I'm so happy you're pointing out that difference. The best practice for humans, if you're going to be fasting for multiple days, you rest. You, you actually like lay down, you journal, you reflect. But if you're going to try and do that and then go exercise and, and all, you are going to, to not have enough cortisol present in order to fight off an inflammation or to fight off an infection. So it, it's, it is nuanced. It's very heavily nuanced. And you're one of the first to look at intermittent fasting and immune response specifically, which is why it's really cool. But it, this isn't a keto conversation. This is a no food in my gut conversation, right? That's right. Exactly. Okay. And, um, uh, and, and, it's and it's important that we don't take this lightly. Right. So uh, because there have been, you know, a flurry of now new regimen where, you know, people are starving themselves, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm a bit anxious about this. Right. That that somehow, you know, food is the enemy. Well, food is not the enemy. You know, I come from <laughs> North Africa and I can tell you that there's a lot of part of Africa that's dying because they don't have enough food. Right. Yeah. So food's important. Uh, food is important. And, and, and usually these people die of infection. Uh, you know, before the dying of extreme fatigue or organ failure, you know, they you know, a lot of infection kicks in, and and so showing that the immune system needs that glucose also to be able to fight, but it doesn't need this constant exposure. And I think this is what we were, and and it needs this period of rest. I think you talked about repair earlier. You know, like when we need to to probably to to sleep, so that there's you know, a lot of repair mechanisms that occur during our sleep. I think you need periods of prolonged. Fasting, the prolonged meaning during the day, the, where you know your system is at rest, and uh, uh, so that the, the, you, you put things in equilibrium. Now, how much more we can push that? I think we need very serious uh, and you know now uh, measurement uh, of, of different uh, you know processes and, and systems to make sure that we are going to recommend you know the, the right combination. But right now, this is not what we've done. You know, I'm an immunologist. I will continue to study inflammation. I will not be studying diet, uh, you know, extensively. But there are many fellows that will be doing this very uh, that will specialize in really food. That in fact, I'm recruiting hopefully also a, a whole team to study that in the institute soon. So there will. Oh, you're recruiting a team to study food. It it's going to be world changing to do that. Um, I have found through trial and error and lots of research in 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 my new book. Look, there's five categories of food that drive systemic inflammation, but not always the same in all people. <laughs> so it you have to have a computational biology approach because if only one third of people have the genes that make them susceptible to a certain class of food, it won't come out in a normal study. At least it won't come out very well unless you're, you're measuring those and looking at the subpopulations like, oh, wow, there wasn't an effect on the whole population, but on a third of the population, it was a 90% effect. Um, and that seems like the world we're in around fasting and specifically around different foods. Different food and different people. I think this is what you highlight is absolutely correct, is that you know somehow we are not all equal, right? So we have to really understand that, that, there, that it's important to stratify people, you know, and this stratification comes from, you, you know, it, teams works with, with computational and quantitative immunologists and quantitative biologists. And we can be put, you know, potentially we in groups that share the same patterns. And, uh, and now, you know, we can, we, we have the state of knowledge to say, well, this group of people should we, we know that this is the case, for example, in, uh, you know, African-American being more susceptible to some disease and not others because they have, you know, differences in, 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 in uh, uh, some gene organization, same with Asian people and same with Ashkenazi Jew. You know, there is some ethnic groups that have, you know, genes, you know, different type of, of gene organization um, that we can now identify and, and sometimes, you know, a spontaneous mutation. So I agree with you. It, it is complex, but we are at a stage where we can now try to understand complexity. This is something that I've really been looking forward to asking you. You have this great set of knowledge and information, and you've constructed these models in your head about inflammation. 
you mentioned that you went from being a frequent snacker to you started intermittent fasting. What do you normally eat? Well, uh, so usually I used to have, I used to adore breakfast and have a croissant and a So I, I spent a lot of my life in France. So, of course. You know, uh, uh, either a croissant or you know, I could also eat a scone in the morning. and then We're Made with real butter at least, right? Yes, exactly. The, uh, and then I will have lunch with a salad and then evening I will have dinner with the family. So usually, uh, you know, two dishes of, you know, one dish of uh, meat, usually white meat, I have to say, and salad. So now what I decided to do is to skip the breakfast. So I don't have breakfast anymore. It's terrible for me. It was very, very hard, but I skipped breakfast. And I now often also skip um, lunch. You know, see, I was a very frequent snacker and I thought that this was going to be impossible. So initially I did it for the study that we've done in the lab. You know, I wanted to, no, initially the lab told me, well, do you want to be a volunteer? 18 hours of fasting. I was like, absolutely not. I will. <laughs> and then I tried it because they all tried it at some point. You know, you have, yeah, I'm not the pussy. So I was going, I did it. And in fact, I realized that I felt better. Yeah. I had more energy than I, than before. And, uh, and, uh, well, I never lunched too much also, I have to say, but the breakfast was a big deal for me. Uh, yeah. And I skipped that breakfast and I was not tired. And in fact, um, and I can tell you today, I had very, I had a little thing, like a little falafel bite at, uh, at 2 p.m. So 2 p.m. and then I didn't have anything. And I, and I feel, so there is, now we know that that inflammatory response makes you tired. We know that, right? When you have flu, you know, that inflammation is what makes you tired. When you have a vaccine, is that little inflammation makes you tired sometimes. Uh, when, so, so an inflammatory response, an injury, you know, like a little injury in your, in your, in, in your hands, you know, will make you feel a bit tired. That yeah. inflammation, inflammation is associated with tiredness because there is a release of inflammatory molecule that can sometimes, you know, cross the, the, the brain, brain barrier. And then and I think almost always they cross the blood. The inflammatory cytokines enter the brain and they make you slow. So you, you whack your elbow and you get a bruise and you're less sharp that day, right? Okay. So we believe that this, uh, maybe this, this, this uh, you know, renewed energy that I felt was in fact due to the fact that I didn't have this burst. Of inflammation, and uh, and I now since then I I love it, and in fact I feel tired if I have breakfast. Uh, and wow, it, coming from a, a, a French background, that's even more impressive because uh, croissants, baguettes, all, all the good stuff, lots of butter and some maybe some cheese. To say baguette is uh, you know, but so what I do, you know, you can. So what I don't want to say because I, I think this is it's, it's very important for the audience to realize that you know don't, don't uh, that the happiness matters, right? So yes, matters to your you know to your even to your immune system. We know that when you are sad, you you know you also respond to it. There is a very strong connection between uh, nociceptors. So. You know some some uh, receptors of uh, you know of uh, of pain and and uh, and the immune system and there is strong correlation and there is a lot of work on that. So happiness is also potentially contributing to your well being, right? So if a croissant is what makes you extremely happy in life, well, probably you know make sure you are not going to sacrifice too much. Uh, and and me, I realized I thought that this was super important to me, but in fact, it's not. But once a week, uh, I have that croissant in the morning uh, because I want to enjoy it, right? So it's also measures, right? That uh, if you don't, if you have very good habit and then you, you know, you have some pleasure, you know, you can also alternate. And we could study that even uh, at the cellular level to see, you know, whether we change anything if we do. Wow change this habit. So all those things can be done. And I'm hoping that the team that will be recruiting will be studying this level of detail, both in animal, but also in in people. I I really hope so. Uh, The recommendations in Fast This Way, and and I've been recommending intermittent fasting for 10 years. People lost a million pounds based on my nutritional stuff uh, with a bulletproof diet. And uh, intermittent fasting just emerged from my own path and very early research on it. Uh, But what I found was that especially for women that oftentimes intermittent fasting every single day, you know, an 18 hour fast every single day after months of that, it, it would lead to problems. Uh, it would lead to sleep disturbances. It would lead to hormone irregularities. It would lead to hair loss. 
which is kind of like those, you know, going for too long without food. So you, you get the negative effects and probably immune suppression too, I would, I would guess is a part of that. But what it, it comes out to for people who are starting fasting, especially women, sometimes three or four days a week or even working up to five days a week. But the advice in the book, which is so funny, you said this, like Saturday morning, have the pancakes, like probably make them gluten-free. It's going to be better. But do that even in the morning, which isn't the best time to eat carbs. Uh, but it's because of the joy, because of the social stuff, and because you want the body to know that sometimes there's just stupid amounts of sugar available. So it can invest in glial cells. It can invest in brain maintenance. And that if you're always in keto or you're always fasting and you never give yourself a break, you never eat foods you love, it, it's not how to do it. And you've intuited that and you've gotten it from your science. But it's funny saying, oh, yeah, Saturday morning, which is what I'm, it, it just lines up so perfectly. And for you, it's a croissant. All right. Not studied it extensively, but I agree with you that uh, I, I think it will be. It's even interesting. It will be even interesting to study it whether it can be even beneficial. Yeah. Uh, you know, as, as you said, by um, you know sometimes changing, in fact, exposure. For twenty-five years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is senolytics. Senolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time, and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called qualia senolytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Synolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Synolytic. It's upped my energy level even more, and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30 and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia Synolytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com slash Dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days. Use code Dave at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave. Use code Dave. I, I believe that the, the way we will probably be able to study it is this thing on my arm, a continuous glucose monitor. This is from Levels Health. And uh, I'm an advisor and investor in the company. And, and it's so cool because then we can actually see at least, you know, what was the postprandial spike in blood sugar, which is probably correlated very highly with inflammatory cytokines because we know HbA1c goes up. So I think that we'll do some computational stuff where we can reliably predict cytokines based on this and something else. And then we'll be able to get data from, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who record when they eat their croissants. And it's, it's such a brave, new, amazing world for doing research on people, uh, on people, not mice. So, absolutely. Uh, now, I mentioned glial cells. These are like the the unsung heroes of the brain, uh, where we have these neurons, which are the rock stars everyone knows about. Except they're supporting staff, and the immune system in the brain likes glucose more than it likes ketones, even though neurons like ketones better. Um, you've gone way deeper on that. You talk about dendritic cells and macrophage biology. Can you talk about dendrites and macrophages and glial cells and help listeners understand why those matter and what the effect of food and inflammation is on those? Yeah. So, well, uh, so those cells, dendritic cells and macrophage, uh, and and I'll talk in the glial cells in a minute, but okay. cell and macrophage are cells that are present in every organ. Uh, macro, uh, macro, let, let's talk about macrophage. Okay. And uh, macrophage are in every organ, including the brain. And in the brain, they are called microglia. In the brain, there is two types of glial cells. There is the microglia and astrocyte. And the uh, microglia are macrophages. And the goal of uh, the, 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 really the goal of the cell type is uh, uh, twofold. The first is to constantly clean damaged cells. They clean each time the cell is dying because even neurons get damaged and can die. Uh, and there is, in fact, some neurogenesis always ongoing. Some neurons proliferate, despite, you know, the dogma that neurons will never regenerate. There is some ongoing neurogenesis, even in adult brain. 
the 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 macrophage constantly eat damaged cells. You know, they know when something is damaged, they eat it. They are vacuum cleaners in our organs. In the in an organs where there is high uh, cell turnover, such as the skin or the gut, the epithelial cells are turning over constantly. Uh, and and you know, if you didn't have a, a vacuum cleaner, then you'll have all these dead cells accumulating and it will interfere with your the organ function. So macrophage is a key, key cell type. And in fact, we've, uh, 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 several groups uh, have shown that these macrophage were already present in primitive organisms. Uh, so in very, very small organisms, you know, there is this dogma in biology that if something is conserved between, uh, you know, different species, it means they are relevant. Otherwise, we would have given rid of them, right? Darwin, um, you know, principle. And uh, uh, so these macrophages were already present in very small organisms. So clearly they are doing something that is essential in, in, in organ homeostasis, homeostasis, you know, maintaining, you know, the organ uh, in, a, in a good state. But what macrophages also do, and they share this function with dendritic cells, is that they are also have acquired this possibility to recognize a threat. They have threat receptors on their surface. And they are the one, they are the one, we call them also sentinels. I call sentinels, more the dendritic cells. I'll come back to this in a minute. So uh, uh, they both cell types can, can recognize when there is a threat. They are the only one that can do that. They are the one that tell the adaptive immune system, the noble cells, the T cells and the B cells that make antibodies, you know, something is wrong, react against it. They are the one that tell the bone marrow, please send us granulocyte, neutrophil, to come and help fight the infection. They are the one that really ring that alarm, you know, uh, uh, and, and tell everyone, you know, there is fire. Very, very important cell type. So they have these two functions. They eat damaged cells all the time, and then t- they, 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 they decide when to react and, not, and, and, and when not to react. And this is why I decided to study them. Because when I joined immunology, everyone was studying T cells and B cells, and no one cared about B cells. However, B cells are the ones that tell T cells and B cells what to do. And I love them. Now, there is this dendritic cell, there's a little twist to them, uh, is that they are like macrophages, except that they got rid of the vacuum cleaning function. Their job is only to travel between an organ, so let's say the skin, and draining lymph node. Well, what's in the draining lymph node? In the draining lymph node, you have all these very sophisticated immune cells, the T cells and the B cells that make antibody, the ones that are going to kill and get rid of the, the COV-2 virus in COVID-19. But those are, you know, in the lymph node. So dendritic cells come from the tissue where the infection starts and they migrate there and tell them what to do. So, uh, uh, and, and I think these evolved later during evolution. They are like a sophisticated macrophage and you find dendritic cells only in larger organisms that have T cells and B cells because the smaller organism has a very primitive immune system composed of mostly macrophages and, and other type of um, primitive cells. Not the course on evolution, uh, and uh, uh, so direct fasting. You know, you want you know, so you want the cell, the sentinel cells, you know, to really know how to uh, really um, respond. And uh, and uh, uh, so so going back to to you know, sensing. So we eat, and then we we ask. You know, the, there is another cell type that I I should have put there, which is called monocyte, and monocyte differentiate into macrophages. They are a precursor of macrophage. And those monocytes are the ones that are being released when there, when there is food intake. So those monocytes are being released, but they are not going to, they know when to start uh, saying something is wrong. So they are going there. They are probably mobili- mobilized to tissue. They are going, you, your pool of macrophage is going to increase in tissue because you are constantly eating. So you send more inflammatory cells, you send more macrophage, and somehow your macrophage pool is increasing in tissue. And this is what worries me about, uh, you know, us eating all the time is that you are not supposed to have all of these macrophage pool in your tissues. Then, you know, somehow they are going to, you know, you know something is going to happen. And in fact, in, in, in lesions like atherosclerosis, for example, uh, you know, what you see is this very large pool of macrophages that are being, you know, uh, uh, too inflammatory. So you are at risk when that pool of sentinel becomes, you know, too big of, 
responding uh, in a dysregulated manner. And uh, so we think that somehow that that pool of mac- uh, that, that pool of, of macrophagian tissue is affecting by the way we eat. Of course, we have to study this a bit longer and a bit more, and and there are many studies now that are ongoing uh, to look at that. Uh, in a bit more detail. So this we are just scratching the surface. Wow. Uh, is the same, you know, way I can go on and on. You have to modulate this conversation. That, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a whole lesson in immune biology from, you know, a, a world leader in the space, which is, which is awesome. I want to take it in the direction of understanding what inflammation does for COVID-2. Because you've been looking at why do some people get really sick and why do most people not get really sick? So what what's going on there? What have you discovered? Yeah, so I, I you know, love these studies, but I have to say it's very complex. But I'm going to tell yeah. you what we, the few things that we found. So, you know, what's surprising, so surprising, but still a bit uh, uh, somehow striking is that COVID-19 is very heterogeneous. You know, you have, People who have no symptoms, and I'm sure among you know some of your friends you've seen that or you know you yeah. observe that some have very little symptoms, some are very tired, like you know if they had flu, uh, but they still can stay at home and don't have to go to the hospital. Very very tired, and some have to be hospitalized, and few of them. I mean, and some of you know, and and, and some have died, and many have. Yeah. Uh, so so it, we were very interested in this. Is that let's say among the uh, the, the same group of people with, let's say, the same type of comorbidity, do we find, uh, let's forget about comorbidity, same group of people, let's say, you know, regardless of age, do we find, you know, very different type of outcome? Now, one thing that's very clear is that comorbidity is a big risk factor for COVID-19 disease severity, for, you know, developing a severe outcome. And when you look at the comorbidity that are... uh, putting you at risk of severe uh, COVID-19. It's quite interesting. So age is one of them, but really the big risk factors are diabetes, hypertension, and obesity. Yep. Kidney disease a little bit also. Now, chronic, all of those four conditions really increase inflammation. Chronic, you know, you are in a chronic inflammatory stage. So to repeat those, it was diabetes. Con- uh, uh, hypertension. Hypertension, high blood pressure. Okay. Sure. Uh, uh, I said diabetes. Obesity. Obesity is being fat. Forty-two percent of people, right? <laughs> okay. And age, right? And, and age, okay. Chronic kidney disease. Chronic. Ah, okay. People who have a dysfunctional kidney. So all these diseases, you know, do they have very one common strong theme, which is inflammation, chronic inflammation. If you measured, you know, to me, aging is uh, is really a chronic inflammatory state. And for many reasons that I'd be very happy to explain because we have a big effort on aging now, but uh, uh, it is uh, this chronic inflammatory stage that you know was common to these patients that, when exposed to the virus, will develop a severe outcome. So our hypothesis is that um, you know there is you know you can see potential causality there. Now in this chronic inflammation, what you see is this uh, what we call accumulation of this cell that I just described to you these monocyte and macrophages. All of them have excess of monocyte and macrophage in some organ and excess release of some what we call innate inflammatory molecules. With this macrophage, they usually where when they are in excess, there is a problem, right? They are not being released from the bone marrow. You know, it's very complex, you know, for the bone marrow to release cells in the blood and the blood to cause a, 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 a blood barrier to enter. You know, these are processes that require, it is regulated, right? So there is a, a, a reason why will do that. So when you have an excess of this macrophage, the body thinks that there is a problem and at some point you have what we call this chronic inflammation that you have felt when you were overweight. It's those macrophages that are releasing, you know, this inflammatory molecule. So there is a cough to that arise and what you, you, you have and what we are finding is that there was a completely dysregulated what we call myeloid response, macrophage and monocyte response. And those macrophage, instead of responding, you know, in a, in a normal manner, which is, you know, I am going to tell the body that something is wrong, but then I'm going to stop, you know, I'm not going to continue to call for help. And uh, we think that these uh, 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 macrophage were exaggerating 
the, the threat. And this is what we are studying now is what are, you know, why, uh, uh, why there was this exaggerated response. And, and we think that uh, an abnormal myeloid compartment potentially associated with some vascular damage because all these conditions also make your vasculature a little bit more leaky. Yep. So this exaggerated response with increased accumulation of immune cells because your vasculature is leaky. So you tell uh, immune cells, please come and help us. But but really, what's, please come and help. There is a threat here. Please come. And then suddenly you have all this excessive inflammation that occurs. One thing I want to say to the audience, which is very important, and that is very, very, it's an important result. And we are not dying. All these patients that died of COVID were not dying because of excess virus. The, the virus, all of the, the lesions that we've observed and studied from patients that died of COVID had been able to get rid of the virus. So there was no virus left. Ah. Because it's really this excess inflammatory response, strikingly. And uh, so it, the virus was not, the, re, the virus triggered something, of course, but the virus was not responsible for organ failure and organ damage. The lung were cleared of virus and they were destroyed by inflamed cells. And, and do we know which cytokines did that? Was it IL-6, IL-8, TNF? Was it IL-1B? What, what, one beta, what was it? Okay, so, so this is where, you know, sometimes the public often like simple response, right? But you know yeah. that it's very, that, that, that these immune cells, you know, work through program, right? There is a program that is unleashed. Not only the public like simple, sometimes even some of our colleagues like simple answers. Sure. No simple answers in biology, you know. And uh, unfortunately, this is the case. You know, I, I'm today, you know, just after I, I, well, today I'm responding to a critique of a paper in a very serious journal. And, uh, and the guy is telling me, find the mechanism. And I'm telling him, well, that mechanism is not simple, my dear. It is not one molecule. <laughs> It's systems biology. The, the idea that there must be one is an assumption that is not proven. It's usually more than one. Okay, good. Exactly. So what happened is that we think IL-6 is involved and we think CNF is involved and IL-1-beta is involved. However, as you may have heard in the press, the initial IL-6 blockade trials were negative. And, and, and then suddenly, you know, even some very close colleague of mine that I love, uh, dearly were telling us, well, you know, see, Miriam, you were completely wrong. IL-6 is not involved. And I said, well, we blocked only one cytokine. You know, what we need to do is study what happened in these, in these patients with IL-6 blockade and see whether we affected anything at all or whether, in fact, there were other molecules that are also uh, leading to this injury. And I don't believe that there is one molecule. There is a group of molecules that need to be targeted. But what we are looking at, so this is a big uh, focus of my group, and, uh, uh, now and, and many groups all over the world, and, and I have to say we many of us work together on this question, is really trying to find nodes that are important to target. You know, what are the big nodes there? And um, and there are very interesting results, uh, and, and we are still testing in patients. So you, you, I don't know whether you've seen that, but IL-6 blockade, in fact, had been had, 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 has led to some clinical benefit. There was a paper um submitted was still in med, med, med archive but attracted a lot of press there was even a comment mm-hmm. uh, about it on on the economist and and and, and the, in the new york times showing that in fact you know, it's extraordinary that now the economist is talking about immunology it's, it's I'm, I'm very happy about it but you're becoming famous well you know uh, my hope is that we will by doing that we are not going to try to simplify the message as long yeah. as play press understand that it's very important to embrace the complexity and really, you know, yeah. the audience can take it, you know, just tell them, just tell them what it is, right? It is complex. Initially, we thought it was one molecule. Now that we can study many molecules at the same time, we realize it's more complex. I believe we can embrace complexity and still have very efficient drug. It, it's what, it, it's what hacking does. Right. The, the idea is if it's going to be a black box and we think we know what's inside there, but we can test if we're, we're hitting enough of the nodes to get the results. And then we'll see. Like in the, the first couple of weeks um, of, of COVID, I said, well, guys, here's the list of natural compounds that we know radically reduce IL-6 because it's not just pharmaceuticals. There's things like andrographis. All of them, because probably because they're plant-based, um, they also reduce other associated things like a network effect. 
And then um, I got a nasty letter from a three-letter agency saying, take down that blog post. So I did. Uh, but we do know, and like, what would I do if I had a unknown viral infection? Well, I would address excessive inflammation without, without suppressing my immune response. Because that's what all functional medicine doctors have done throughout all of history. Like, and there's herbs, oh, 20% reduction in the duration of symptoms, likely because of this effect. But that doesn't mean it's going to cure any sort of specific virus, but it's building resilience by preventing excess inflammation. What would you do? And you may not even be in a position to this, but what would you do tomorrow if you had an unknown virus that was causing systemic inflammation? I mean, would you take uh, an leave? Would you fast? Like, th this is not uh, offering advice for people on what to do. This is you as an expert in the world saying, I don't know what's going on, but what's the what's the most likely thing that you'd bet on? Yeah. Well, okay, so... so this is the conundrum here, right? So you, you need your immune system to fight that virus. Right. But the, the excessive response can lead to injury. You know, big example is COVID. Now in COVID, what's interesting, and I think the, the, the answer for COVID would be simpler just because we know a lot of, uh, uh, about it now, is that by the time you have symptoms, you usually have a strong immune response against it. And this is what we have found, my group, that by the time where in my, and, and together with many colleagues here at Sinai, uh, where, by the time they were coming to the hospital, you know, many of the patients have already a strong antibody response and, and likely a strong T cell response, but definitely we measured very good antibody response. So at that time, I think it's okay to give strong anti-inflammatory even steroid, uh, uh, because uh, uh, if you have an antibody response, those antibodies are not going to go away. They will get rid of the, 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 the virus, the free virus, and, um, and you probably have T cells that are going to also have get rid of infected cells, mm -hmm. continue to act, and you are going to reduce this inflammatory injury, you know, that, that inflammation that is telling the, the immune system keep bringing, you know, effector cells and keep bringing, you know, more army here to clear the damage because it is, there is this, this, you know, at some point the immune system can go in this way. Now, what scares me when I have a new infection, and this way it's difficult to address your question, if I have a, <clears throat> a, a, an infection that I don't know about, right? Uh, I don't want to compromise my immune system. I want that strong antibody response because I want to get rid of the virus. So this is where, you know, you, you, you have to be very careful about how to intervene. And maybe this is why some people will be really, really reacting. You know, I was very anxious initially when we were bombarding patients with steroids when yeah. they were coming to the hospital, because I thought, wow, you know, we are going to put them in an immunocompromised state. And I'm sure that many of these patients don't have a strong antibody response. But then I observed that many of then I said, and least, well, I, 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 I don't give clinical advice in this disease of right. clinician in chief, but I, I, then I, I would have said, you know, the, continue to unleash steroid, absolutely. So you have to be very careful. This is the conundrum that we, that I study. And, and that, and this is where I, you know, when I talk to the pharmaceutical industry and, and, and to, to funding agencies, this is the conundrum. This is the therapeutic, this is the moonshot, the moonshot the, the, of, of this century is how you drug the immune system so that you, you continue to, to, you, 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 you do not compromise or you keep the beneficial effect without compromising our ability to fight infection, uh, cancer cells. And you prevent, you know, the damaging effect, which is excess inflammation. And this is, you know, I, I draw usually a balance and I'll, I'll send you, you know, some material if you want. And I said, this is, this is the conundrum of this century. We have the knowledge. We can drug it. Let's figure out how, you know, to, to continue to make sure we, we, we retain and expand and harness the beneficial effect and, 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 and control the harmful effect of excess inflammation. I'm hopeful that we get to the point soon where someone shows up at the hospital with whatever inflammatory viral infection, COVID or not, we can look at all their different cytokines, go, hmm, this is what's going on. And if, if you're listening, going, wait, what's a cytokine again? These are inflammatory signaling molecules happen when you have inflammation. But if they're, they're like a symphony, different ones come up at different times, we'll probably be able to say, ah, based on this pattern of cytokines, let's use these substances, natural or not, or these practices that may include fasting, 
to attenuate that response so you have the right mix of cytokines you don't have too many of them and that that will be a very broad spectrum way of treating things because now we've limited this response i don't think we have the data for that yet but it feels like we're getting kind of close how close are we well um you know, there are some diseases where we are uh, uh, closer than others. You know, in, in this big uh, uh, lung injury uh, uh, disease, uh, you know, including flu or, uh, or sepsis, for example, uh, uh, we still have a lot to learn. And um, But I have to say the pandemic is going to really uh, somehow enhance that focus. And, and, and really, I think they have not enough attention or funding uh, being put in sepsis, uh, for example, just because we, sepsis is such, such a complicated, you know, because of the complexity again. You know, other diseases, for example, you know, when I'm, when I think about cancer, you know, where, you know, imagine, you know, a few, few years ago, so, so, oh, too complex to really uh, revive, you know, uh, like make sure that we uh, uh, drug, you know, cancer immune response. And yet, you know, in cancer, the progress that we have made uh, in, in 10 years, you know, drugging the immune system of cancer lesions is extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, and we, in fact, I will, I will argue that many of the knowledge that brought us to, uh, you know, developing this fast COVID vaccine, you know, the mRNA vaccine that Pfizer and Moderna did, is because of cancer need. Right. We made this vaccine, the, we, the community, you know, we're pushing for this type of vaccine, uh, you know, really for the cancer community, because it's very difficult to do an infection vaccine, you know, and, and because of, you know, you, you will deliver, a, a, you know, a, an agent to, to a healthy individual. So this field is really complicated, you know, in yeah. terms of drug development. However, you know, cancer is such a need. So I will, you know, all this knowledge was really because of, of, of the cancer immunology effort. It's extraordinary. So, you know, our field is so active. Uh, you know, you cannot imagine how much uh, intellectual strength there is right now in really trying to, 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 to really pass out, right, all the different pathways. So when you wow. say how close are we, I think somehow if we put the same effort in, that we put in cancer immunology in really understanding this big, lung injury uh, disease, including, and, and, you know, I think the pandemic is going to just do that. Yeah. Um, I'm super hopeful. You know, I'm very excited. Awesome. Uh, 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 right now, because many of the superstar colleagues of mine uh, and many of my superstar fellows are, have decided to study that. So it's exciting. Well, the, this is the long-term thing. And for, for listeners, just think about this. It's been pretty messy in 2020, no doubt about it, you know, economically, personally, just society-wise. Um, the, yeah, politically, of course, but the the longer term, one, two, three, four-year effects from the level of attention and funding of this are going to make people live longer, <laughs> regardless of whether or not they get COVID, just because we are cracking more of the code of, of the human body. And I'm I'm always honored to be able to talk to someone who's actually doing the cracking of the code. So Dr. Murad, thank you for being on this episode of Bulletproof Radio. And thanks for explaining what's really going on in our immune system and talking about fasting, even from croissants, but only some of the time. <laughs> sure, my pleasure, anytime. Thank you. If you guys like today's episode, you're definitely going to want to read Fast This Way. And because we don't go quite as deep into the science as we went on this episode, but it's got a lot of learning for you in it. And you also want to join the fasting challenge and training where I'm going to teach you what's in my book for two weeks for free because I just want you to try intermittent fasting to experience exactly what Dr. Murad experienced. Wait, you mean I had more energy when I fasted and I saved time and money on breakfast? And when you have more energy, you're actually nicer to other people and you can show up in the way you want to do. You can make great discoveries as you're hearing about on the show today. So join me in learning how to fast without pain go to fastthisway.com. And if you haven't ordered the book and you're planning to, please order it now because early orders make a huge difference for authors like me. Have a beautiful day. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. 
The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.